0: you're listening to a sermon from grace church located in frisco texas get to know grace church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org today's speaker is pastor craig cabanis well it's wonderful to be together uh thanks for being here this morning uh if we've not met before my name is craig and i'm one of the pastors here at Grace Church, and I just want to let you know that it's really our, our thrill and our joy to have you uh, with us worshiping together this, uh, this Sunday. Uh, well, I wanted to uh, just give a little brief uh, r- update on what we're doing here in this series. We're, we're doing a short series that will kind of go uh, from here to Easter-ish when I say short series, can you believe we're, we're on the verge of Easter, uh, Lent season is going. And so here we are, it's, it's coming, uh, coming fast. And so, uh, we are last week, I gave a very long introduction. I said, it was it really set the world into a record for the longest introduction to a sermon. Uh, and, uh, it was explaining where we've been over the last two years and for the need now to sort of come together as a church and, and review what it means for us to be together as a people, as a part of a church, to DTR, uh, to define the relationship or define the church relationship. And so today, uh, I'm going to. Last week we looked at, at church as family, and today uh, I want to talk about the church gathers. I want to talk about the ve- the very gathering of the church. What what we're doing in this in this moment uh, here, gathering together. Uh, you know, I learned a little. Diddy, a little uh, rhyme, a little poem. I don't know what it is, but I learned a little thing as a kid. You may know it as well. Uh, You just kind of put your hands like this and you say, here's the church. Here's the steeple. Can you see this on the back row? Can you see me? Okay, here's the church. Here's the steeple. Um, Open the door and there's all the people. Guys, how many of you know that? It's really moving. It's powerful. God bless you. We'll see you. No, no, I have more than that. Okay. So early in the life of the church, it's theologically inaccurate. So early in the life of the church, for some reason I trained our church with a more accurate version of this. And I made this up, wrote it myself. Uh, Here's the church. No, 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 the backup. No, that was the problem. Here's a building. It has a steeple. Open the door. The church is the people. Ah, yeah, okay. I've also written a modern one that goes today. It's like this. Here's the church. Here's the steeple. Open the door. There are no people. This is our online campus. (laughs) Okay. So, but the the, the theologically accurate one, open the door. The church is the people. I'm going to modify that for today's sermon and probably never again will I do this in the church. Uh, So it's here's the church building. It has a steeple. God is uniquely present in the gathering of his people. That what I want to talk about today is that when we gather as his people, something unique happens. It's more than just the church is the people, uh, which was my 2008 version. Uh, it's more than that. It's that God is uniquely present in the gathering of his people in a building, this building is called a church building. What marks out the people of God from all the other people in the world is that the people of God uniquely experience His presence. That's what distinguishes us, and that's been true in the whole Bible, if you think about it. Adam and Eve, uh, they, are, uh, they are created, they live in a garden, they live in God's presence before his face. They have unhindered, unbroken fellowship relationship with the very presence of God. Well, they sin, they rebel, they're cast out of the garden, and that, that their fellowship with God, they're, they're living directly in his presence, that's broken off. And uh, so what God does is we could trace this in detail through the Bible, but just taking a couple of the big chapters, uh, what God does is he restores uh, his presence among his people by uh, ultimately under Moses having the people build a tabernacle called, interestingly, a tent of meeting where you met with God. And their sacrifices were offered and uh, sins were forgiven and God's presence was with his people in the tent of meeting. Uh, Later, once they got into the land, David made plans to build the temple. His son Solomon built it and dedicated it. But in the temple was the place where it doesn't say, the Bible doesn't say God visited the temple. The Bible said God dwelt, God lived in the temple. God was present in the holy of holies in a unique way. Mount Zion was the location of the temple and Mount Zion was the place where we could say, heaven and earth touched, heaven and earth met. In the temple, and it was the center of the life of God's people as they gathered in his presence. God once again was present uh, with his people. And all of that tabernacle and all of that temple pointed to Jesus Christ, who came Emmanuel, God with us. John 1 says, uh, The word became flesh, speaking of Jesus, the word became flesh. And tabernacled among us is what it literally says. That just like the tent of meeting of the temple, Jesus came as the temple of God. He said, I'll tear down this temple and rebuild it in three days. Talking about himself. So Jesus comes as the temple of God. Talk about God's presence with his people. Jesus is God in the flesh who who himself is a sacrifice. Unlike the temple which uh, offered sacrifices were hosted there, he himself is the sacrifice. He's buried, he's risen from the dead, he ascends to the right hand of God. And what does he do? What's the next thing in salvation history when he is seated at the right hand of God? He pours out his spirit on his people so that now his spirit is overwhelming the people of God and the people of God are filled with his presence. That's Acts 2. The presence of God is is not in a building, and the presence of God, uh, the ultimate is the God-man, Jesus Christ, but now the presence of God is uh, given to everyone who believes in Jesus Christ and to his people. We see that in Acts chapter 2. And then what happens from that point is we get new language. The church is called the new temple of God. Under the old covenant, God dwelt uniquely in a temple, but now he, de- he dwells in a new temple, the church. And I want you to turn to First Corinthians 3. We're gonna look at this in just a second, but this is what Paul communicates to the Corinthians. He wants them to know this reality because they've got problems. They have divisions among them and they're living unholy lives. And you know what he does? He doesn't say, "Hey, can't everybody get along?" He doesn't just say, "Hey, stop being unholy." What he does is he identify, he gives them a new identity or reminds them of their identity that they are the temple of God. And this is in 1 Corinthians 3 verses 16 to 17. Listen to God's word. Do you not know, do you not know that you are God's temple? And that God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Now the yous in this, they're all plural. Do you not know that you plural, you local congregation in Corinth, that you are God's temple. And this is how he addresses the problems in the church. He says, you are divided. How can you, in essence, the the whole chapter is about being divided, chapter three up until this point. How can you be divided when God's spirit, you are in God's spirit, you're you're the temple. That's what you are. That's who you are, the temple of God. And then he says, you know, uh, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are the temple. So rather than saying, straighten up, everybody, stop sinning, he says, look, you guys get together. You're the very presence of God in your midst. It's incongruous to be unholy. It's incongruous to be divided. You are the dwelling place of God. It's astounding to think about this. He's saying to a really messed up church, arguably the messed up, most messed up church, At least they have the most scandalous sins of any church in the New Testament. And he's saying to them, you, plural, are the temple. And the word he uses for temple here, it's not the word for the temple grounds. There was a word for the broader temple grounds. The word he uses is for the sanctuary, the very dwelling place of God. You, together, are the place where God dwells. Paul's making a theological point here that just as God was uniquely present in the temple, now he is uniquely present in your gathering. Now I know right there he doesn't use the word gathering, but it's throughout the book. The whole whole book is largely about what happens when they gather. So here, the chapter's about divisions, but if we look at chapter 11, you'll see that he says, when you come together... When you assemble, I hear there are divisions among you. The divisions played out when they gathered. And so he's saying, you, the, you are the temple, and when you come together as the new temple, there's divisions. In chapter 14, he says that if an unbeliever walks in the room and one of you prophesies, that person's heart will be opened and that person will say what? Surely God is in this place. The place wasn't the building, the place was the people. Because God is uniquely present among the people when they gather. So he says, if someone on the outside comes in and hears you speak a prophetic word, they will know that God is present. God's presence is the factor that distinguishes the church as his people. When we gather, he is present. So when we talk about DTR in the series, defining the relationship, the church, here's the relationship. The church gathers as the temple people of his presence where God dwells uniquely. Now, maybe you think, well, wait a minute. Isn't God present everywhere? Well, the Bible kind of talks about three uh, levels of God's presence, we might say. So the Bible teaches that God is present everywhere. Theologians call that the omnipresence. That God is omnipresent, that he is everywhere uh, at once. So Psalm 139 makes that point. Where can I flee from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Psalm 139 is this list of I could go here, I could go there. Even if there are no people around, you are there. So there is a sense of the universal omnipresence of God. A second level is God dwells in the individual believer. Uh, Romans 8 says this, that we, uh, that that we, Romans 8, 9 says that we, uh, you can't even be a Christian if you don't have the spirit of God, it says. Paul writes, so we have the spirit of God. In this book, 1 Corinthians, in chapter 6, he's going to say, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So he makes the point that we individually have the spirit of God. That's, that's what it means to be a Christian, that we're united with Christ and we are indwelt by his spirit. So God is everywhere, we could say that. His presence is everywhere. His presence is in the believer. But what he's talking about here is level three, another level that God dwells uniquely among his people. We find this throughout the New Testament that he is uh, building a people that are his temple. Ephesians 2 actually says that. 2.22 says, you are being built together as a dwelling place for God. Christian church, he's writing to a local church, the Ephesian church. You're being built together as a temple for God. Or 1 Peter 2, he says, we are living stones being built one upon the other. So when we say that we are the temple, we're saying that he is present in us corporately. And and ultimately, we're saying that something happens in our gathering. Now, here's a really important point. When we hear the word church, we can can think all kinds of things. Sometimes we can think building, and hopefully I've, uh, you know, crushed that. Uh, forever with my little church steeple deal. Uh, We can think building and that that's the church. And so most of us know it's the people of God. Uh, And that is true. The people of God are the church. There's the universal church, all believers for all times and all places. And then there is the local church, uh, the gathering of the people of God. Um, But the word church in the New Testament has really uh, carries the idea of the assembly. The gathering of God's people. The church, it certainly means more than gathering, but it does not mean any less than gathering. That is at its root. In a, in a new, well, I guess it's new, a couple years old maybe, uh, newer book called Analog Church, Pastor J. Kim writes the following. This is helpful. Ekklesia, that's the Greek word for church in the New Testament. Ekklesia or church in a biblical sense is almost always a group of people who gathered regularly to worship, share their lives with one another, and learn and live out the way of Jesus together. The word itself is a compound of two Greek words, meaning called. That's the root word, called, kaleo. And from or out of, ek. So you can see that ek is the beginning, and then klesia comes from kaleo. So it means to be called out from or to be called out of. In broader terms, the word was understood to mean an assembly or gathering of citizens called out from their homes into some public space. So this word was used, to, uh, was used a Greek word that was used in this time in the first century, and it referred to people being called out and assembled together. And that's who we are as the church. We are called out of death and assembled together in life. We're called out of darkness and brought into light. We are called out of the flesh, brought into the spirit. We can look at a lot of different ways about that. But the idea of assembly is baked into the Greek word for church. It doesn't mean building. It doesn't just generically mean people. It means those who are called out from something and assembled as a people. That's what the word means. Similarly, in a newer book called Rediscover Church, Jonathan Lehman writes the following. Sometimes people like to say that a church is a people and not a place. It's slightly more accurate to say that a church is a people assembled in a place. Regularly assembling or gathering makes a church a church. This doesn't mean a church stops being a church when the people aren't gathered any more than a soccer team stops being a team when the members aren't playing. The point is, regularly gathering together is necessary for a church to be a church, just like a team has to gather to play in order to be a team. He goes on to say after that, spiritual things happen when Christians stand elbow to elbow Breathe the same air, join our voices in song, hear the same sermon, and partake of the one bread, which is a phrase from 1 Corinthians 10, 17. To be part of a church means in part, not fully, but part of what it means to be the people of God, to be the ecclesia, those called out, is to assemble with a local group of God's people. And when we gather, he is is present because we are the temple, the new temple, the dwelling place of God. So how is he present when we gather? Well, there's a lot we could say about that. Um, he's present in our singing. He, he dwells in our praises. He's present as we, pray together as the people of God. Uh, he's present through the exercise of spiritual gifts. I read 1 Corinthians 14. Someone prophesies, unbeliever walks in, surely God is in this place that actually people would be aware of his presence through the exercise of spiritual gifts. He's present in our fellowship. We share together. He's present in our serving as we serve together on a Sunday morning. So there's many ways we could say God is present in a, in a special way as we gather. But historically, the church has affirmed two primary ways that God is present. There's many ways he's present. I just listed six or so. But two primary ways the church has said. And, and this was, I don't know when this was first sort of historically affirmed. But in the Reformation, um, uh, under Martin Luther, the Lutheran, what became be called the Lutheran church, the people who were following his teaching, Uh, ultimately made a confession of faith, a statement of how they distinguished their doctrine from that of the Roman Catholic Church. And so very early in the Reformation, the Augsburg Confession was written. And this is what the Augsburg Confession says. This is a historical statement. The church is the assembly of saints in which the gospel is taught purely and the sacraments are administered rightly. That definition has held for centuries now, where many churches would say, we could say a lot more about the church, but at a base level, uh, church is the gathering of people, the assembly of people for word and sacrament. Sacrament meaning baptism, water baptism, and communion. It's a uh, that the, the God is present with us through spoken word, taught the Bible, his word, taught word, and he is present with us, Through physical elements like water, um, bread, and wine as we gather. So I want to talk about those two things. As an application. So if we're the temple, God is present among us. We're the called out ones, called to a symbol is what the word, the Greek word that was used at the time indicates. If that's who we are, and if we could say He's present in a lot of ways, but we can't equally give time to six ways this morning, let's give a little bit of time to talk about the fact that God is present through the declaration of His word and God is present through sacraments. I'm, I'm going to particularly talk about the Lord's Supper. I'll reference baptism, but particularly talk about the Lord's Supper. First of all, God is present through the preaching of his word. Let's look at uh, 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 3. In 2 Timothy 3, Paul is giving a charge to Timothy, and he, and he starts here with uh, talking about the Bible. This is what he says in 2 Timothy three sixteen: All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, And for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. And by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. The context here is Paul's at the end of his life, and he's passing the baton to his protege, Timothy. These are the last words he writes. So we're in chapter 4 of 2 Timothy. These are the last recorded words that we have of Paul in the Bible. And so it's sober. He's passing on. He's dying. And he's going, humanly speaking, Timothy, you know, take the baton and run. And he could have said a lot of things to Timothy, couldn't he? He could have said a lot of different things. He could have said, Timothy, here's my final charge to you. Pray like a madman. Uh, He could have said, you know, reason in one-on-one context using apologetics to convert people. He could have said, um, you know, he could have said, make sure that you're focusing on communion. He could have said that. He could have said, get some small groups going. He could have said all kinds of things. But what he tells Timothy is he starts with the scripture and in verse 16 he says all scripture is breathed out by God. He's reminding Timothy, hey, I'm I'm leaving now. My race is done, but I want you to remember the word of God is breathed out. It is the very word. It is the very truth of God himself. That's the scripture. Now, in the scripture, God uses human authors. He uses their personalities. He uses their style of writing. He uses their gifts in some cases. But he he controls the process. So that all of sacred scripture is the very breathed word of God. That's where it gets its authority. The scripture is not one book among many. The scripture is not one spiritual take on reality. But for the Christian, the scripture is the very word of God. The breathed out word of God. And so he says, preach that word above all else. Preach this word which has power, Timothy. The word preach here is a verbal form of the noun herald. Just like in our translation, preach is a verbal form of the noun preacher. So the word is really herald, um, a, a herald the word of God. A, a herald, not like a dude's name, H-A-R, but H-E-R-A-L-D, herald, H-E-R-A-L-D. A herald was someone who delivered the news. You know, we have a lot of ways to get news today now, but if you lived um, in the, uh, some city in the Roman Empire, if was a developed city at all, they had someone who would come and bring messages. Maybe he would uh, deliver them in the town square, something from the Caesar. Caesar's bringing a message to everybody in the town. So we're not familiar with that. We're all familiar with a medieval herald, though, right? Guy comes into town. He's I don't know. He's always got tights on, kind of wearing that velvet mini dress thing. And he's got got a trumpet and he comes into the town square. I mean, we've all seen this. I don't know if that's how it really happened, but we've all seen that. And then he'll call everybody together. Hear ye, hear ye, you know, citizens of the kingdom um, by royal decree, the king calls you to and then fills in some message. And, and that that is... Actually, what he's talking about here, a herald, whether they were in the first century Roman world or the medieval version that we've seen, perhaps caricatured in uh, movies and TV and that sort of thing. Uh, the, the herald announces the message of an authority. He, he's the messenger. He brings a message from someone else. And what is the message Timothy's to bring? It is the God-breathed word from God. you are to announce the very message of God. This isn't what Caesar says. This is what the creator of the universe says to you. That's what he tells Timothy to give himself to. And so when he tells Timothy to preach the word or what I'm doing in this moment, we, we are gathered as a community summoned by the king to hear what he has to say to us. That is the goal of our gathering, just as if we were an assembly in a town square hearing what the king's message is being delivered from the herald. Today, that's what we are doing. And so biblical preaching is not just talk about God. It is actually talk from God. He is the message. He gives us The God breathed out word, he has a herald delivered that to us. And so we hear his word and we receive it from the scripture. We receive the scripture as his word. This is what Paul tells the Thessalonians. He says, we thank God constantly that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, You accepted it not as the word of men, but as it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you, believers. Paul says, hey, here's here's how we commend you, Thessalonians. You heard the message heralded, and you received it as a word from God. And so that word is at work in you as a group of believers in the city of Thessalonica. Now, we are to test what, what I say, what any." Pastor in this church says what anybody anywhere says that's claiming to bring the scripture, a word from God. We are to test it and see if it squares with the Bible. Uh, the Bereans did that in the book of Acts and they are commended for it. So we are to evaluate. But we are to come expecting to encounter the presence of the living God because he's here and he's speaking. God has something to say to his people when we gather. And so we want to expect that, that the word will be heralded, the breathed out word from God, the scripture will be spoken as we come together and that shapes us, that transforms us. In the New Testament, there are churches gathered under teachers, shepherds, pastors, teachers that are declaring the word of God and, and, and God is building local communities of his people as they hear his word applied to them as a congregation. I think there's something unique about hearing God's word in the gathered church. I I listen to digital sermons, um, maybe on YouTube, uh, maybe on a podcast, an audio sermon. So I do that. Digital sermons aren't bad. I listen to other preachers. And here, learn other things. And digital sermons, they inform. They inform me. They teach me. They enlighten me. But when God's, but none of those digital teachers are my pastor. Rob's my pastor. Caleb's my pastor. Bob's my pastor. None of them are my pastor. They don't know me. They don't know the context of where I live and our church family. I'm just being informed and taught. Digital sermons are very helpful, can be valuable that way. But when God speaks to a congregation through a shepherd herald, a shepherd that comes from our midst, and we respond to what we are here, we're not not merely being informed, we're being transformed as a community. God speaks to specific contexts, specific needs in a specific body. S- pastors aren't just delivering generic messages to go all over the internet to generically touch all kinds of people. No, sermons are delivered. I mean, there are conferences and stuff like that, nothing wrong with that. But sermons are delivered in the context of real people where they're the people teaching are among the congregation and know the congregation and know what the needs of and know what God's saying in this season to emphasize from his word to the people of God. Where there can also be pushback and adjustment to that speaker. And that speaker can even be shaped in the, con- in the uh, I, get, I get input uh, on my sermons at various times and and that shapes me, that shapes whoever speaks here. And so there is this transforming work happening among the people of God. When we gather, he is speaking to us as a people to apply his scripture into our lives, to transform us and move us together into maturity. Are you expecting to hear God speak to you when we gather like that? Do you listen actively expecting him to say something to you and beyond that something to us. I'm not saying when a particular application or rebuke is made from scripture, you're thinking, man, I hope so-and-so heard that. I'm not talking about listening to us that way, Uh, listening for our own heart, but listening to how do we put this into action together? How do I encourage my brother or sister in the church from the word we heard from the scripture to apply that together? Very different than just listening to a random podcast, though that has value. It doesn't have life community transforming value. You only get that when you are in a congregation growing together. How could you come better prepared to hear God's word? Our normal practice is to teach through books of the Bible. We're in a different series right now for a short window. But uh, I recently had someone... As soon as we finished Ephesians, there was a member of the church that texted me and said, where are we going next? Because I want to be ready. So this person told me throughout Ephesians, I was going through John Stott's commentary on Ephesians. So I came, I studied the passage uh, from a reliable commentator so that when we gathered on Sunday, I had been in the word and applying it. And so now we're doing, I'm saying that this person didn't tell me that, but so now we're going to the next series. So I want to, how can I be tracking along? I thought, wow, that is somebody who's listening, learning, applying all that she could in community, trying to walk that out together. When we gather, God is present through his preached word. He is working like he was in the Thessalonians. Let's respond to him. He's also present, and this is the only other application I'm going to give this morning, word and sacrament. Again, we could go a lot of places, but uh, he's also present through the Lord's Supper. Now, if that language sounds unusual to you, I I will say we don't hold the Roman Catholic view in this church that the bread and the wine uh, actually change substance into the literal body and blood of Christ. But neither do we want to so overreact to that idea that we end up with some idea that's not in the Bible some idea that, you know what, the one place you can make sure Jesus is not present is that communion. You know, we're going to react so strongly to that that he kind of steps out the door. We want to make sure he's not here for that part of the service. <laughs> we don't want to do that. We don't want to overreact. Um, and I think if we look at the language of the New Testament, we see that when it comes to the Lord's Supper, it points us to, uh, to connection, to communion, to presence, to fellowship with him. It, it, it's a memorial, but but more than that. I've heard used as a, red, a wedding ring as an example. You know, my wedding ring, uh, which is gold, but cut off my circulation. Uh, so now I have this uh, little kind of rubber thing, which I'm really happy about. But at any rate, uh, my wedding ring is a, is a symbol of my marriage. And I've heard people say the Lord's Supper is just like this. I'm not sure that's accurate. The Lord's Supper is fellowship with the Lord. This ring is not fellowship with my wife. The Lord's Supper is encountering the presence of God. I don't even, my wife's up in the class upstairs right now. I'm not encountering my wife's presence through this ring. I'll be encountering her presence when we sit together in the second service today and talk about it afterwards. So it is a reminder. You remember his death, Paul says, but, but there's something more than that. i want to point you to a text that I think makes this clear. It's the Corinthians again, first Corinthians 10. This is what Paul says. The cup of blessing. He's talking about communion here. Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. The word participation is translated elsewhere in the Bible as communion or fellowship, it's the word for fellowship. Is it not a fellowship with the Lord Jesus? Is it not a sharing? It's also translated sharing sometimes. When we receive communion, is there not a sharing with the Lord Jesus? Is there not a communion with him? Is there not a fellowship with him? Paul is saying when you eat the bread and drink the cup, you're sharing in, you're fellowshipping in, you're communing with the work of Christ. I mean, if you think about the other terms for this event. It's very much tied to fellowship. Later in the, in this chapter that we just read, chapter 10, he calls it the table of the Lord. In chapter 11, he calls it the Lord's supper. There is this sense of fellowship and presence with him in communion. Fellowship, the table, the supper, they all indicate relationship, encounter. They all signify presence. When you have dinner with someone, when you have supper with someone, when you're at the table with someone, there is presence there. And when you do it as a group like we're doing now, there is presence together as the people of God. We experience his presence in a unique way in the Lord's Supper. Here's one way I've thought about that. That he is present speaking to us through the Lord's Supper. Just as he speaks to us in his word. He is speaking through communion. The sacraments have often been called visible words. Visible words. And when we receive, the, when we receive communion, we, we can hear the spirit of God saying to us, Welcome! Welcome! In his presence, welcome to the table. We hear the spirit of God saying to us, forgiven. We're reminded by the spirit of God in our spirit. You are adopted into the family. You are a new person. You are loved. You are reconciled to God. You are declared righteous, welcomed in Christ It says something to us. uh, God says something to us horizontally as well. You're part of my family. There is this dimension. You can look around the room. Uh, You know, uh, it's no surprise probably that we're going to take communion in a minute. And you'll be able to look around the room. Here are the people I'm joined to. Tangible people sharing in community together. A communal meal, not an individual meal. A communal meal. There's this beautiful horizontal dimension to it all. He's speaking to us through physical things that we can see, smell, taste, touch. He's speaking to us in the gathered assembly. matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians 11:33, he's correcting their communion behavior, which is not good. It's a meal for them, but they're not doing well at it. And he says to them, "When you come together to eat, wait for one another." Communion is a coming together to eat. It's been interesting over the last, I'd say, year and a half-ish to talk to people who've gathered in the room after watching online for an extended period of time. So some may have watched a month or two. Uh, I can't remember how, much, how long it was that we were just online, but however long. Uh, some have watched a month or two. Some have been watching six months. Some have been watching a year. Some have been watching a year and a half. And then they come back into the room and there's two things people have said to me that I've heard repeatedly. One is you're better looking in person than on camera. No, that, nobody said that. <laughs> I don't think my wife said that, but nobody said that. They said this, Wow to hear the voices and singing, you know, I was watching it on this deal and this little speaker (laughs) while I'm on the Peloton, you know, it just wasn't quite the same (laughs) for a lot of reasons. It's not the same, but one, to hear the voices. Second thing I've heard is to receive communion with God's people. Oh, how I missed that. It's true. Maybe that's been your experience. That was my experience. As soon as we came back together. In that book, Rediscover Church, Colin Hansen writes a chapter where he says, communion means embodied, the people of God embodied present together. He says, you can't program the body and blood of Christ into ones and zeros of digital code. You can't be baptized online either. You can't. It's physical. It happens with God's people together. You got to be here on the front row to get splashed when Rob baptizes somebody in the baptistry. (laughs) Have you considered the unique presence of God among his people in the supper? That when we receive it by faith, it's not magic, nothing like that. Not being magical, not being superstitious, but by faith, God speaks to us through the visible word of the body of the bread and the cup. And he tells us, you're forgiven. Welcome into my presence. When we gather, he is present. And recognizing that he is present makes all the difference in the gathering. If I come just to be entertained by some singing, hear a talk to give me some spiritual help for the week, maybe a little motivation. If I come just for that, just to see an old friend even, something like that, that's very different than coming and saying, we're the temple of God. And when we gather, God is, if the Bible means anything by the word temple, it means presence. God is present when his people gather. He is with us, he is speaking to us. The king has summoned his people with a word for this particular people from his Bible, the God breathed word for this people in this day. And he meets with us, he invites us to a table. He invites us to a supper where all his people are gathered here today in the supper, reminding us that one day we will be gathered in renewed spiritual bodies for the wedding feast of the Lamb, where we will feast gloriously face to face. And until then, the spirit reveals the Lord Jesus Christ and his work to us. And the people around us remind us that we are part of a family that's going to be much greater and much larger when we see the whole family reunion in the new heavens and the new earth. God is here. God is speaking. God is shaping us. Let's gather and let's respond.